You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight then, Galatians 4. Galatians 4 verse 12 to verse 20. Uh, what we note is the Apostle Paul is going to make here an earnest and loving appeal uh, to people with whom he's had a relationship. Uh, these uh, Galatian brethren, he's going to make this appeal uh, in a loving way uh, based on their past and based on the fact that he is doing his best to in every way be a true and good friend to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a little bit longer piece of text than we take, but uh, it's one thought and one continuous thing. So uh, let's read all of it, then go back and set its context and make some application and teaching from it. Galatians 4, verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despair or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that same sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, so that I have so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I labor, or am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you, and now to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All right, so let's remember where this uh, paragraph is in relation to the rest of the letter. Uh, Paul is greatly concerned. Uh, about their desire to go back under the law of Moses and the way that they've been doing that. He said in just the verses before this reading, you observe days and months and seasons and years, these things of the law. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. So he's laboring for them. Now he's laboring again, he said in Christ, trying to bring them uh, again uh, to fullness there. So they're turning their back on that justification that is by faith, They're turning their back on the way of Christ. We saw back in chapter 2, you know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, not the law, the way of Christ. But these have gone back to the law, and they turn their backs even on the promises made to Abraham, in chapter 3. Even so Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. But of those under the law, chapter 3 verse 10 says, as many are of the works of the law are under a curse, as it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, so to perform them. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Before faith came, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until 
the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Now I say, chapter 4, verse 1, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ from, at all from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we were children, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In verse 9 of chapter 4, how is it then you turn back again to the weak and worthless element to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And verse 11, I fear that perhaps I labored over you in vain. So there's the dire situation. And now here is the loving appeal. I beg you, verse 12, we read. I beg you, brethren, become as I am. So brethren, become a believer in Christ and stay a believer in Christ. Counting all things as loss before Christ, leaving behind the law, leaving behind all those other things. As Paul told the Philippians, chapter 3. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So that's what he wants them to do. He wants them to gain Christ above all else. He wants them to have confidence in Christ. He wants them to have faith and belief in Christ and not go back under that system of the works of the law under which there was a curse. Now, from time to time, the Apostle Paul kept some of the things of the law, even though he had written to the Philippians, they're all but rubbish. But in some cases, for the benefit of other people, they were good and helpful and necessary. In uh, Acts 18 and 18, the Apostle Paul was keeping some kind of vow, uh, uh, which he didn't cut his hair. And at Sincrea, it mentions he cut his hair, for he was keeping a vow. In all likelihood, that hair traveled with him to be offered on the altar at Jerusalem as the hair was, in such vows under the law. And then in Acts 21, when he got to Jerusalem at that time, then uh, there were other men there taking a vow. And they, they were Christian men. They were, they were brothers in Christ. It was the elders of the church who pointed these men out to Paul and said, why don't you uh, act as a patron to them, do the things a patron does, which is not to keep the whole vow, but to pay for the sacrifices and to undergo the final rites of uh, purification and finalization of the vow. And so they said in Acts 21, 24, we have four men under a vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them. Again, that's not any kind of moral purity. Uh, Paul's been forgiven in Christ. Uh, it's the purification rituals under the law that these brethren are undergoing. Paul's going to undergo purification rituals with them in the temple. He's going to, it says, pay their expenses in order they may shave their heads. And all will know there's nothing to these things which have been told about you, but that you yourself walk orderly, keeping the law. So how did Paul walk on a daily basis? In an orderly basis, keeping the law. And so he could do that and still be faithful and believe in Christ. 
as it says there, continuing in Acts, but concerning the Gentiles who believed. We wrote, having decided they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what strangled, and fornication. The Apostle Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So there were times when it was helpful for the Apostle Paul to keep the law, and he kept the law. He didn't give offense to Jewish people because he was free in Christ. And so he tells the brethren, become as I am, as I have become as you are. And so what would Paul tell the uh, Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 about this? He said, I am free from all men, but I make myself a slave to all that I might win all the more. So I've been respectful of the law towards you. But the main thing is to get to, to, to you to understand the need of faith, belief in Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, as under the law. Though not being under the law myself, that I might win those who are under the law. To those without the law, as without the law. Though not being without the law of God, under the law of Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may be a fellow partaker of it. So this is what Paul has is doing. He's, he's asking them to be so dedicated to Christ and the gospel that he, they would do all things for the sake of the gospel. And going back under the law and this curse, that's not necessary for the sake of the gospel. Now, Paul says to close out verse 12, don't think I'm taking this as a personal affront. Yeah, I'm really personally involved here. I care about this a lot. I am <clears throat> deeply, I'm deeply concerned, but this is not a matter of personal insult to me or personal aggrievement. You have done me no wrong, but you know how it, that, be, but you know how that was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. All right, now Paul's going to go back and give a little history, and he's going to talk to them uh, about their affection for him. So he's pointed out his affection for them. He's going to go back to when the gospel was first preached and say, look, I'm not taking anything as a personal affront or that you don't like me or that uh, that, that this is a personal parting. I, I want to remind you just what kind of love and concern that we mutually shared. I cared for you greatly in the gospel and you cared for me greatly when I was ill. Paul says, I came to you because of bodily illness and preach to you the first time. Now, we don't really know the details. We don't know what it was that caused this uh, to occur. Uh, we know that Paul went to preach the gospel, uh, and at times he would go to, to one place or another, and it seems like he came to them because of a grievous bodily illness. This is what he states. Uh, the King James will say it was an infirm, a, a infirmity in the flesh. Uh, what kind of issue this was, we don't know. But it had something, as we'll see, that affected his eyes, and it was something that became a loathsome condition. Such a thing that you'd see a guy and go, ooh, that, that doesn't look good. Or, you know, hey, could we cover that up, please? That, that doesn't look, that doesn't look right. It's a kind of thing, uh, it's a sickness of one guy that makes other people uncomfortable. 
So I, I it some kind of loathsome thing that he had. Now uh, there's a number of things of which uh, people have speculated. Uh, mentioning here of the eyes, some kind of uh, terrible and uh, weeping infection of the eyes, some kind of seeping wound of the eyes. Uh, there's uh, some people tie this to the thorn in the flesh uh, that was the messenger of Satan to buffet me that Paul mentions in Second Corinthians 12. Uh, the, the, this time that Paul came to the Galatians is right about the time that John Mark abandoned him and abandoned the preaching tour that they were on. And some people have tied Paul's terrible illness and this loathsome condition he's in, this poor health that he has. They've tied that to John Mark leaving and, and, and giving that as a reason why that, uh, uh, you know, he might have picked that time to, to say his goodbyes uh, because th- these, this thing is not going well. The head of the party is, is, uh, is, is having some kind of terrible physical affliction. So we don't know what it was. And we don't know if those other things are tied in or not. Circumstantially, they seem as though they could be. But to go, <coughs> to go be, <coughs> to go beyond that is uh, speculative, beyond which the text reveals. But again, verse fourteen, it was a trial, that which was a trial to you. So Paul's in such bad shape that his bodily condition is a trial for other folks. Now, I've got a bit of a cough, which I've had for a while. It's annoying me. It's not much of a trial for you, though, is it? I'm probably much more greatly annoyed by my light cough than you are because, oh, well, Jay has a cough. All right. Well, what if I had something else that was a bad health condition? Well, you know, it might become uh, difficult to work with or it might become, another, uh, might become a problem. But how bad would my health have to be that it's a trial for y'all? That my health is a trial for you people. I mean, that, that's quite that's quite the situation of body when your body is a trial for others. If it's a trial for others, what is it for you? And what does it say about Paul's dedication to preach? That he keeps on preaching. So, there was a trial for you in my bodily condition. But you did not despise or loathe. You received me as an angel of God. And so, we think about that when people use that turn of phrase. Uh, about somebody who, and they, they just all, oh, they're an angel. And, and it's really a high compliment. Uh, now, sometimes we, we might say, well, that person, do they really know what that person's like, especially when they call the kids or the grandkids a little angel? Of course, you watch out whenever somebody calls, you know, a little kid a little angel, because, oh, you know, heaven help us. Uh, but in this case, Paul said, no, you received me like a messenger of God. You received me as this, uh, as a high exalted uh, one, you receive me as Jesus Christ Himself. So you receive me as the, as if Jesus was there, in spite of this bodily condition, which under normal circumstances would have been something of loathing, and that was a trial for you. This is the affection of which Paul was held. Uh, this is the effect, the esteem uh, that the Apostle Paul had among these brethren, and it was because he preached to them the gospel. He seems to have no connection to them other than he brought them the gospel. So once upon a time, they were this happy that he was there to preach them the gospel. But now, what's the situation? 
So where's that sense of blessing you had? So this sense of, 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 of prayer, uh, an appreciation, this sense of which we are so glad that Paul was with us. He's a blessing to us. But now, mm, but back then, and he closed out back then with this last statement, I bear you witness that if possible, and this is an odd turn of affection, but it must have been needed, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So I think the, whatever the whatever the affliction, loathsome and trial-inducing infliction Paul had, it must have been centered around his eyes, right? Must have been centered around his eyes. Because else, elsewise, why is plucking out your eyes and giving them to me, why would that be considered a helpful thing in any way? Uh, unless there's just some really unique cultural thing or idiom among the Galatians, which I don't think there is, and no one's ever produced that in any commentary I've read. It must be that uh, he that this uh, bodily affliction was eye-related. Now, I'll just say one more thing. I've seen some, uh, again, more liberal theologians speculate that the Apostle Paul's eye trouble was in some way related to uh, his Damascus conversion, where he saw the bright light uh, of Jesus shining brighter than the noonday sun, and somehow that permanently damaged his eyes. And that just seems silly uh, to me. <laughs> uh, whatever happened there, and we do know he was struck blind for three days, but uh, uh, when he confessed Christ and was taught Christ, something like scales fell from his eyes, we're told in Acts 9. And so I'm pretty sure that that covered whatever... Uh, uh, temporary problem he had from the uh, Damascus experience. But in any case, uh, the Apostle Paul was not uh, saved from or kept from bodily illness. Uh, I don't guess the other apostles were as well. So if they, you know, if, uh, you know, all the members of their family had some chronic condition, well, what do you think the apostles probably had? You know, if, if diabetes or baldness or, you know, eczema or dandruff, whatever, if that ran in the family of the apostles, uh, what do you think the chances of that particular apostle had it are? That's probably pretty good, right? And so they weren't saved, they were saved from sin, but they weren't spared from all physical malady. They weren't given health, and they obviously weren't given wealth. Now, in today's, uh, many places, the view of Christianity is, is what? The health and wealth gospel. That if you're if you're faithful, it'll all go well with you, both in the pocketbook and at the doctor's office, right? And does that comport with apostolic experience or apostolic teaching? No. So he had this terrible thing, but what it what this and this is what all of these things uh, of troubles uh, should do is it gives us an opportunity for greater appreciation of the blessings of God gives us greater opportunity to give glory to God, right? It wasn't just in the blind man of John 9, of which the malady he had caused glory to God. Anytime we have a need, anytime we have an affliction, anytime we have a problem, it can be an occasion uh, for spiritual virtues and spiritual things to come to the forefront for love and concern to be shown. In, in the case of John 9, the blind man, it was you know the miraculous power of Jesus. In the case of Paul, in whatever eye malady he had, it was in the case of uh, love and concern being expressed and shown. 
And uh, uh, these brethren met that test well. And he said, this is how you love me. So you have loved me and I have loved you. And our love has been in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what brought us together. That's our shared experience. That's the things that we have worked on together. That's how we built our friendship and our relationship. And I now am bringing you that same message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to be a true friend to you still, even though I'm not there. So the famous question here in verse 16 of Galatians 4, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? All right. Now we know that I love you and we know that you love me. Everything we've always done has said that. But now things are estranged. Things are difficult. You're not feeling so happy about me now. Some of these people who one time would have said, I'd give Paul my right eye, are now saying, I'd give Paul my right foot. You know, I need to get rid of that guy. They've changed their attitude toward Paul. And what has caused them to change their attitude toward Paul? That he's not enemy uh, in the minds of some. That he's now not one to be uh, pitied and loved and helped and encouraged, but he's one to be uh, shut up. He's one to be uh, ignored. He's one to be overcome. Why the change? Well, he says, is it because I've told you the truth? I've only told you Christ. That's how we got here. I'm telling you Christ now. And so if you've got a different reaction to me now, it's because something's changed in you, not in me and not in Christ. I am telling you the truth. And I do it as a friend, right? What does the proverb say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And that proverb seems to apply to what's going on here. There are people who are kissing these Galatians, probably figuratively, not literally, but they're kissing up to these Galatians. They're seeking them, Paul says the next verse, but not commendably. Yeah, they're seeking you. Oh, they're courting you. Oh, they, they, they love you, they say. But are they doing what is right? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. So they're shutting you out of the blessings. They're shutting you out from Christ. They're shutting you out from the apostles. They're shutting you out from the good brethren, the true brethren. They're shutting you out. They zealously pursue you, but they're doing that so that you may have to seek for them. See, what they're doing is they're putting themselves in the place of these folks who you respect, who you treat well, because of the commonality in Christ, they want to supplant that and they want to put in their own doctrines of which then they'll be the head of the party. They'll be the head of the group. You'll need them instead of needing Christ. So like uh, Matthew 23, when Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites, he said that they would travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. Well, it seems like these Judaizing teachers have done that here. They've gone and told the folks in these churches how much they love them, how much they respect them, how much they want them, but not to bring them to Christ, he says, but to shut you out. So we're going to take you back to the law, take you back to the things uh, that shut men under sin, shut you out of the blessings. But then what are you going to need when you get there? Now you're going to need them. 
You're going to need that uh, Pharisee. You're going to need that rabbi. You're going to need that priest. You're going to need that lawyer. You're going to need that expert in the law to tell you the traditions, to tell you all the things which uh, have built up around this system and not the simplicity in truth in Christ. So they do it again in order that you may seek them. And so it's sort of like uh, these companies that do everything they can to acquire new customers. But then once they've done everything they can and promised every service and everything under the sun to get a new customer, as soon as they become a new customer, what do they do? They treat them shabbily, right? Uh, I don't think there's anything worse in that regard. Uh, maybe then, uh, say, cell phone companies. You know, cell phone companies. They'll give you every kind of come on in the world to, to, to enter a contract. But the moment you enter a contract with these people, where, where, where does all the benefits go? Where, where are all the promises of new things go? Well, they, they disappear now because you signed a contract with them. They treat you like you're their debtor. And you're trying to beat them out of, out of the contract you signed. And so it's a totally different relationship. One, they're pursuing you. But then once they pursued you and captured you, what do they do? They act like you're their servant now, right? The, while, while pursuing you, they're the servant. They're the one that's offering. They're the one that's helping. They're the one that's giving. But as soon as you sign that long-term contract, now you're their debtor and you're trying to beat them out of what they're owed. And that's what's going to happen here with the Galatians. That these, these teachers have come in and promised them all of these things and all this good that will come. If they'll come back to the law, if they'll come back to the synagogue, if they'll come back to the old ways and the old mindsets, but then the moment they agree, why well, they're no longer the pretty girl to be pursued. Now they're the old lady, right? Now, now they, they they've signed on the dotted line, and now now they're just a uh, you know a debtor to them. And now you need me. Well, what was all that sweet talk when you needed me? Well, I got you now. I don't need you no more. That that's how that goes. And so these folks want what they can get out of these Galatians. They'll promise them the moon to get it, but once they get them, what do they want? Well, they want their honors back now. Matthew 23 again. They love the place of honor at the banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greeting in the marketplace, and being called by men, rabbi. Yeah, they want that back. And when Christ came and brought all these people to God directly, and without them, Oh, they were kind of shut out. Well, they want to get back in there and put themselves back in there again between the people and God. So Paul says, yeah, it's good always to be sought. It's nice to be wanted, right? But why do they want you? Verse 18, it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I'm present with you. So yeah, it's good to be wanted. And the apostle Paul says, I want you too. But I don't want you on the basis that they do. I want you on the basis of God in Christ Jesus. And so I don't want to get in between you and Christ. Uh, Paul would tell the Corinthians in one place. He said, I have betrothed you as a pure virgin to Jesus. And I'm now afraid after I've set you up that you're going back on him and, and you're not being faithful. Paul Paul's great seeking was seeking them on behalf of Christ. And we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. What so much did he get out of it? Well, spiritual things, right? He got a bunch of spiritual brethren. 
he got a bunch of people who loved him in the Lord. But the Apostle Paul, did he get a pension out of it? Did he get a nice house? Did he get honorary degrees? What did Paul get out of it? He didn't get so much. These guys, what do they want out of it? They want that place of honor. They want that place of, of, uh, of the chief seats. They want those respectful greetings. They want that. They want these things of men. So Paul says, yes, it's always good to be sought in a commendable manner. And I'm, I'm seeking you too, but I'm seeking you for the right reasons for Christ. And he says then, not only when I'm present with you, but also is the unfinished statement, but now from afar. And so Paul is concerned with him all the time. He's concerned when he's there. He's concerned when he's gone. He doesn't have one rule at home and one rule away. And so he's not really, it's not that he's, uh, he's not jealous that other people are paying him attention, but that other people are trying to despoil what he brought into Christ. They have, these people have dishonorable intentions. So my children, so here's Paul's connection to them again. My children, with whom I'm in labor again. So, you know, I labored, I worked to bring you to Christ. It's like I'm having labor pains again. I'm having to redo the work we used to do because somebody has taken you from the place where I tried to bring you. I, I birthed you in Christ, as it were. I brought you to Christ in this comparison. And now I'm in labor again until Christ is formed in you. So I, I am trying to grow you in Christ. It's a similar comparison as we recently read from 1 Thessalonians 2 on Wednesday nights. Paul said, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And then later he says, your witnesses, brethren, of how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each of you as a father would his own kids. And so he uses two comparisons of parents there. Uh, the mother who's tenderly nursing to bring the children to one stage. And then the father who's encouraging and exerting and imploring uh, his own kids at another stage. Right? So there's one stage of development where you're sitting on your mother's lap and you're at your mother's breast. There's another stage of development where you're, you know, your dad is following along and, and telling you what to do. And Come on, Johnny, let's go. We can do it. You can do it. Or, hey, Johnny, stop that. Maybe that too. But there's those two different aspects and places of growth. Well, here he stepped here to a third one. He says, like, we're in labor with you. We, we're, you're, you're, we're growing you in our womb, as it were. Uh, and we're in labor now. We are trying to get you, we're trying to get Christ formed in you. So that when you come out in the world, you'll be fully, fully connected to Christ. I wish, he says, verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. So I'd really like to be there. I'd really like to talk about this face-to-face. -face. Actually, didn't we just read from First Thessalonians 2 last night about Paul wanting to be face-to-face -face with those brethren? How many times we have these letters of the New Testament where the apostle says, I want to be with you, but I can't, so I'm writing you the letter. And, and really... I'd much rather, and I think we can see this in the letters of Paul, does Paul seem to like writing uh, the letters of commendation a lot more than letters of rebuke? 
Isn't it a lot easier to read through Philippians where there's hardly a rebuke in there than it is to read through, uh, you know, First Corinthians especially maybe or others? And so, yeah, I'd like to have a different tone, especially if it has to be by letter. I really wish it could be otherwise. But right now, right now it cannot be otherwise. It has to be this way. And so uh, one time I heard a fellow, he was a very successful uh, manager. Uh, he was talking about this type of thing, about about writing. And he wanted to uh, impress upon the, those he was instructing. He said that uh, whenever I have to give a rebuke, when I have to give a critique, he said, I, I just never want to write that down. If I, want to, if I need to give a compliment, he said, I love to write it. And he said, one of the reasons is, is because when we write things, we have this human tendency to go overboard and we don't see the other person at the other end and we just write it. We're just giving a monologue and we have such a tendency to go overboard where if we were there, we could see a person's expression. We could read their emotions. Uh, we would know if we should proceed on heart, you know, more or we should dial back and we'd be able to respond accordingly. But we can't do that in a letter since of necessity. It's, it's just us. And so it's so easy to go overboard until, and we just go on until we need to feel like we need to stop, but maybe we should have stopped a long time ago. So he said, when it comes to, to writing, if I'm going to go overboard, I'd much rather go, go overboard on praise or commendation because what's the harm in that? Uh, there's not much downside. But in critique and criticism, going overboard can just be absolutely dreadful. Now, here we see the apostle and we know he doesn't go overboard, right? Because he's a part of God. He's not going to go overboard, as is our human tendency. And that is one thing that strikes me about this letter and some other letters of the Apostle Paul. I can think of a few places in Philippians or 1 Corinthians, as we mentioned a while ago. If we had to write a letter dealing with those situations, uh, how, how much more strident might we be? How might we go after them? And, uh, you know, this, I'm perplexed about you. Uh, that is an awful, uh, in, in face of the apostasy that some of these folks are undergoing, that that sure seems to be a very calm and, and reasoned statement, uh, a, very, a very delicately put point. I am perplexed about you. Uh, I'd probably write something like, what are you doing, you big dummies? You know, have you not even heard of Christ or... I might not think to remember all of the good that was ever done, right? As he go, he rehearsed about his reception and the the common love they had shared, and so the apostle Paul, yes, he he will write a negative letter, and he we have a lot of them uh, in the New Testament. Things have to be dealt with, but if we look at the care and concern with which he deals with things, even when they are dire situations. In this case, people departing Christ for the law in such a harmful situation, we might think that a much harder rebuke uh, uh, might be warranted. And so uh, it's not that he just gives a Johnny positive message, right? You know, it's, it's not all positive all the time. It's not that. But it really is measured, isn't it? It's measured and tempered by love. And if you're trying to win people to Christ, or in this case, win people back to Christ, the personal elements and the personal aspects of these things 
really should, like the Apostle Paul does, tend toward the common love, the common faith that has been shared, and the good qualities uh, of which you can build on. Now, we'll note, though, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, he can, and he will in the very next section, he will go, uh, I think, in a way that if it weren't the Apostle doing it, I wouldn't even think this was warranted myself. But he's going to tell them about uh, Hagar and Sarah and their children, uh, the children of slavery and the children of promise. And he's going to basically say the people who follow the law are the children of Hagar. You know, that's Ishmael's territory there. And he's going to say the people that are of faith are the children of Sarah and the children of promise. The children of Sinai are going to be the children of bondage, of slavery, and of law. But the children of faith are going to be from the mother Jerusalem, of promise, of faith, and of benefit. And so it's not that these negative things aren't pointed out, but they're not personalized. They're not made personally negative. And I think that's highly instructive for us. So Paul ends this section uh, after having so much in common in the past that they've loved and shared. Yeah, folks, I'm perplexed. I, I am perplexed about you. And uh, even though I've, I've studied Galatians a number of times, I think I'm going to try and put that one in my toolkit. So whenever I have to write a letter to one of the kids or write a letter to somebody that said, what are you doing, man? I'm going to say, Hey, I'm perplexed. Help me understand. I think I'm gonna, I think I might add the I'm perplexed online to my toolkit uh, with the apostolic uh, example here of the Apostle Paul. All right, so his earnest appeal to them, please come back to the, uh, to, to the faith that's in Christ. Uh, and, and look at how you came to Christ and look at the people who brought you to Christ versus the people who are taking you from Christ the different concerns that they've had, the love you shared with with us who brought you Christ, how we're still your friend from afar. But man, uh, not being there, I got to say, Paul says, you you have me puzzled. You really have me puzzled. So we go back to the doctrine next week and the, the allegory of the two covenants based on Sinai and Jerusalem, Hagar and Sarah, And we'll find out it doesn't go well for the law keepers. It goes well for those of faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.